This video was sponsored by Canary. Go to canarylabs.com or use the link in the description to learn more about their enterprise class process data historian. Now let's get into the podcast. All right, so everybody, uh, welcome to this 4.0 Solutions podcast. We're here with Rick Belota. We're going to get into his background story and we're going to talk tech. But the first thing I wanted to ask Rick was when you were there at Wonderware just after they went public, how many new cars were in the parking lot after they went public and what kind of cars were they? There was a lot of nice cars in the parking lot. I mean, you think about it, it was the first industrial software company that went that route. Um, and I think it was one of the first venture backed. If I could, if you know, this is going to the Wayback Machine, but yeah, there was a lot of people with a lot of coin. Ironically and sadly, a lot of them, um, a lot of folks kind of had the belief they had the Midas touch and kind of invested it and doubled down and uh, it didn't go so well. But nevertheless, it was, I mean, you remember, it was an amazing sort of cult following. It was a great time to be there. I was telling someone the other day about the, the VCs that were back in it. There was one called HBP, Houston Venture Partners. They were basically astronauts. Now I'm a total space geek. So one of the events I showed up at, uh, Alan Shepard's hanging out in the bar there. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, but- uh, Alan Shepard was one of the guys who said that SpaceX shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't al allow space uh, or private, right? Private companies shouldn't be going to space. Shepard was one of the guys. And wasn't it, uh, uh, Glenn, was it John Glenn who also said, um, it was a couple of them. They came together and testified before Congress, right? The, to uh, not let SpaceX go. But um, all right. So Rick, you know, we, the background here for the community, everybody, um, so every, obviously watch everyone, the podcast or watch the, uh, IOT shootout. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a video we posted a couple weeks ago, the IOT shootout, which was me responding to a thread that Rick initiated in the discord server. Uh, obviously Rick doesn't really need any introduction. If you're in industrial automation, you already know who he is, but, um, you know, it's obviously, it's great to have you here. The, um, we, in the interest of full disclosure, I do not normally have a conversation with the guest prior to uh, the podcast, we did talk for maybe 15 minutes beforehand to just kind of like warm up. So, and we did hear a couple of great stories already. So, and I, I kind of gave an outline of, Hey, this is what we'd kind of like to cover. So this podcast is the, it, the goal of this podcast for me is, is to, um, I want the community to hear where, where Rick thinks the industry should go. A talk a little bit about where it's been, but more importantly, for people to hear Rick's opinion on where the industry should go and likely will go. Um, and so we're going to try and get there through the conversations that we, that we have today. So what I want to do is just quickly, if we can start with, you know, your background, you and I have a, we have the upstate New York connection. In fact, we were talking about earlier, you know, Rick and I have hung out at the same bars in Ithaca, New York. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, his, our wives went to the same high school and I mean, it really crazy, <laughs> background, you know, Whoa. so, um, but, and, and, but Rick and I don't know each other. This is the first time I'm meeting Rick in person. Um, we've talked privately in discord a couple of times, but, um, so Rick, why don't you just for everybody, go ahead and, you know, give the arc of your career and, and we'll kind of start there. Sure. Let's give the express version. Um, so I graduated, uh, in, in the mid eighties, kind of, if you think about the time there, uh, the PC was just coming out, right. I had two computer classes in college. I got a D minus and an F. So I'm like, this is definitely not something I'm going to be doing. Wait, wait, real, real quick. You were, you, you were at Cornell when one of the biggest, um, the, 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 one of the most famous 
hacker um, was a hacker incidents ever happened was a Cornell student. Were you there when he did that in the mid eighties? I don't recall that. No. Okay. I mean, I remember he went to federal prison and everything. He was, uh, I remember it was all over the local news. So it may have been like 87, 88 or whatever, but anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. But. For perspective, I was still punch cards and a deck writer. Okay. Got it. Right. For now. Anyway. So uh, graduated, I, I worked for Boeing for one day. So I, uh, I went to, I was, I could, I had really, my grades were not great. So I uh, had limited choices graduating. I went and signed up. I was going to be running the uh, rewiring projects for the CH-47 Chinooks uh, out of Bowie Bertal. And went in, signed up for my uh, benefits on a Friday. And then over the weekend, Luke and Steele called. It was a job closer to home. I'm like, taking that. So I know I'm on a government list somewhere now for, for yeah. <laughs> Um, so I actually started out industrial engineering, um, doing kind of operations analysis, capital project stuff, kind of classic IEOR stuff. Was this a rolling mill or were, what, what, uh, yeah, so we did mostly specialty play, um, a lot of ar armor stuff for submarines, you know, a lot of specialty stuff, not too much commodity stuff. Um, we also had, you know, uh, electric arc furnaces, kind of a fully integrated mill. Um, not, not especially as like a new core or somebody like that, but more right. broad, but anyway, so we, um, uh, an opportunity opened up, uh, to go do a, join the, uh, the operation side in our heat, heat training facility. And that was like where I learned more about how manufacturing really works. Cause it's the people aspects. It's about what metrics matter. And we'll talk, you know, we can have a whole, there's a whole riff on discord about like adding safety and other metrics to kind of OE, but um, that was probably one of the coolest experiences of my life, right? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm doing real, it's so satisfying in the morning, you have a, you know, a pile of unfinished work at one end, at the end of the day, it's on the other, I got to run cranes, got to run plasma torches, real shit. Same time, we were doing a major automation upgrade. And this company is kind of cool. Um, they were super progressive in applying technology, like, so this was in the kind of VAX era, right? So mini computer stuff. But they had a, it, it, a little bit ahead of their time um, that they had a group that kind of lived in that void between IT and OT. Um, so we were doing all kinds of wild stuff, what you would call MES today, what you would call HMI today, all with kind of custom, you know, custom stuff. But I was on the op side helping them, you know, define the needs for that. And then an opportunity opened up to go join that team. Well, I, I literally went to my county library, pulling books off the shelf to learn like how to program and learn a Fortran and Pascal and taking floppy disks home. And I kind of dug it. So I'm like, well, this is, this is, this is interesting. I should, I should run with this. Um, so I spent a, a year and a half helping actually do the automation in this line. So we, you know, controller integration, the whole bit, right? What was kind of wild is I remember the same dudes who were, I was in, and girls I was working with, when we, we started putting the technology on the floor, a couple mm -hmm. things happened. It was amazing to see how many of them went out and bought a PC for home. It was like, it, it kind of spread the value of what computing could do. So that was kind of cool. Second thing was watching the whole terminology change from charging a plate into the furnace became F3 in it and pulling it out became F4 in it, right? It just transforms how you interact with stuff. And and what was this? Was this 1990? Is this 89, 90? When? This would be mid-80s, late 80s, right? Okay. So uh, PC was just starting to kind of make its mark known. Um, so I really enjoyed that, that my stint there and uh, got to do really see kind of all sides of the business, right? 
Um, and then a, a friend of mine called me up, uh, a, a larger systems integrator. Um, you, you may know them. They, they eventually became Tava. So mm -hmm. Tava, if you recall, was like that amalgam of a bunch of integrators. It was all control systems. Uh, so I joined them. Um, we were probably about 20 people at the time. Uh, we ended up being about 100. But we were doing a lot of custom stuff still then, you know, Unix and, and DEC stuff. Then we discovered like Inolution, Wonderware. It was kind of right at the dawn of that stuff starting to starting to uh, fire up. Even the first MES stuff. Like, I don't know if you remember a product called Palms. I do. Uh, yep. Palms was like way ahead of its time in retrospect, right? It, it was, was like, too early. It was too far ahead of its time. Right. But you could integrate it with SCADA, have event-driven mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, it was just kind of cool. So we, we got some, we're all products of the stuff that we, you know, we did in the past, right? So you kind of learn a little bit of that. Hey, that's a cool capability. That's neat. Um, so I worked in integration, all kinds of projects, some of the, some big SCADA batch. I did PLC work, you know, a little of everything. I, I, actually, my most therapeutic thing was like, if you could get a little time, just wiring a panel. It's like, it's like cleaning a pool. It's therapeutic, like just repetitive work. So did a little bit of everything. Um, did that for a bunch of years. And I got to know the local Wonder distribu Wonderware distributor quite well. Um, and we were still doing factory link, you know, you name it, we did it all. And where were you? You were in the Northeast at this time? You were, okay. Philly suburbs. Yep. And okay. customers were all around the world. I was going to Philippines to do like brewery startups and all kinds of wild stuff, but mostly North American companies. And then you'd go, you know, the drill, you've been there. Yep. Um, so, uh, the, the, um, co-founder of the local Wonderware distributor, I got talking to him about, um, things that, uh, you know, what, what Wonderware is doing. I said, hey, man, it would be awesome if InTouch did this, this, and this. So he hooked me up with a guy named Phil Huber, who was one of the co-founders of Wonderware. Yep. And we hit it off. And But ironically, I ended up, the, the opening was for a sales gig. So I ended up, actually, that was my first sales role ever. Um, but it's very techie sale, right? You're, sales you're, engineering, more sales engineering than, okay, cool. It was an account exec, but with my skill set, I became, I turned it into a more technical role. Um, mm -hmm. but both fun, right? So I got to work with now working with distributors. All, what I learned. How from, did you, hey, Rick, how did you get it? How did you get it so that the client didn't want you to do the project? Like, this is one of the things that I've always seen is that, you know, even if I only want to do business development because I'm an architect and I have technical aptitude in that background, they always end up wanting me to do the project, even if I'm just doing the development how did you avoid i mean and, and there are people watching this who go through that exact same thing how do you avoid that so i actually as a sales as a tech as a salesperson who i'm more a relationship person i kind of felt like i wanted to be involved right so an integrator or the in-house folks would be doing i said hey i'm a resource for you right as right. you we did the same thing at Lighthammer, thing works whatever we had that fleet of sales engineers who would support the integrator the end customer so you it. weren't you weren't decoupling. You were you were along for the ride in a support role. Got it. As much as you can, right? Depends right. what your boss wanted to you know ring the bell too. But you know, in a, particularly like not so much with like SCADA and control projects, but more of the kind of higher level stuff, uh, MBS, intelligence, and analytics stuff. Like that first site, you're still kind of selling, right? It's not rolled out to all the other sites, so. Right. Right. So being more involved with that was like success assurance, just as much as you're building value equity is what I always call it. In that first one, you're doing value equity, you know, 100%. and I think the smarter integrate, we learned this at ACS, smarter integrators, like if you have to kind of competitively bid every single project, 
you know, that's, that's, that's a painful way to do business. If you're trust supplier and you get repeat business, it's awesome. So right. we, we, I tried to carry that forward. Um, so I did the sales gig and I was able to still keep that vehicle to do product feedback to the technical team forms those, those relationships. Um, then I got, uh, an entrepreneurial bug, took a little detour. That one was a disaster, came back. Um, and I did a second stint at, um, at Wonderware this time on, on product management. So you were at Wonderware proper. This wasn't with Cumation. This was Wonderware proper. Got yeah. it. Okay. Oh, and for those of you guys don't know the local Wonderware distributor, in Horsham, PA, just outside of Philly, is Cumation. That's what I want. Sorry, I realized you didn't mention that while we were recording. So, so, um, so what was interesting then is we went on an acquisition bench. We bought a company uh, called Soft Systems Engineering, which was our batch package. We bought a company called Enatech, which is the MES solution. I remember, I remember that acquisition. Yep. Well, painfully, I do. Let me tell you yeah. what happened. So, <laughs> I got dumped in my lap, and basically, um, within not long, 30 to 60 days, maybe 90 days of the 20 engineers that were based in Cupertino, mm -hmm. we ended up with one. And that was a conscious, they all left. And it was a very difficult situation because we had built all this, we just fired up the sales machine, you know, customers were deploying it. And now there's basically nobody to do maintenance or, or advance the product. And I'm, what, what, what was, what was, what was the, if you can share, what was the cause of the exodus? Um, I'd pro probably just so much opportunity in, in Cupertino, right? Um, because this is what, where, where are we in right now? And the, that was, that was sort of late nineties, right? Is that, or was exactly late nineties, right? 96 ish. Okay. Okay. So, and it was a big acquisition at the time, right? They spent like you know, yeah. 20 million bucks on this, um, which turned out it was basically a more or less a VB prototype, not real product. Let's fast forward. So now I'm holding this bag of shit that, that customer commitments, no future roadmap, I have no developers, right? So what do I do again? I go to the library, learn visual base, roll up my sleeves. Well, that turned out to be the greatest thing I, it ever happened to me because it got me technical again. And it just, that's what my, my juices just started flowing. So I got to just dive in, got to build a team in York, um, a lot of which became people I work with at future companies. So building a team, but it was fun. I actually got to, I, I love coding and creating and, you know, making stuff. It also taught me about extensibility, right? Because I, mm -hmm. here we were in an environment where, you know, every MES implementation is different. You got to yep. be able to add new UX components or new this or new that. So it, it, it trained me to kind of think in that, in that mindset as right. well. And it's, and it's 80% homogenous, right? 80% uniform, 20% custom or heterogeneous. And you, you, whatever platform, whatever, whatever platform you're working in has got to be able to handle both sides of it, right? You got to do floor level CICD, but you also got to do enterprise level CICD for more, you know, um, you know, uniform components across the entire implementation. It, I always say this all the time, any idiot can do it. And I don't mean to, to disparage anyone, but any idiot can build a SCADA system because SCADA is SCADA is SCADA is SCADA, right? But MES is a whole different ball of wax, completely different ball of wax. And, and I think the, the, the one thing I realized is that like, if, if you think about it, SCADA is more or less an extension of control. Right. And when we get down to the control layer, like there's only so many ways to do a control loop or safety interlocks or whatever, right. there's best practices. As you kind of go up, I always used to say it's like an hourglass. At the bot, control's fairly uniform and like 
ERP, you know, how you do a purchasing process or close the books. They're all, well, Enron was different, but they're all sort of the same, right? But it's when that, that amorphous layer of MES is like, hell, no two lines are sometimes the same, right? right. So that was a big eye opener. Um, I did that for a while, did the, did the product management side. And then the light bulb went off there because I saw, oh, we got this, we bought this batch stuff from one company. We had this MES stuff from another. Then we bought a historian from a South African company. And we bought this other thing from this, you know, this AI assistant thing from another company. And we had all our stuff. And I'm like, wow, it's, I, I know what we're dealing with to kind of bring all this stuff together. Then all my experience with these customers who have a mixed bag of everything's legacy the moment it goes in. And so much custom stuff and SQL Server and Oracle and whatever. So I'm like, well, there's an opportunity here to build something kind of like if you think what, you know, inductive and, and wonderware and all these folks did on top of any controllers or devices you want. Now at the information layer, there's an opportunity to be, do that same thing, right? A uniform way to get at that stuff. Um, I left, uh, so I left and started a company called Lighthammer Although we had a little detour there too. So the first thing I did was actually extensions to Wonderware, specifically to let people build uh, custom stuff where it wasn't possible before. Uh -huh. um, and then also kind of custom alarm handling and all these kinds of things. Turns out the big use case for uh, sophisticated alarm handling was prisons. I sold a lot into like, go really? So at security, whole security application. So that, that was like, I mean, we sold thousands of licenses into the security world, bizarre. Um, but anyway, Wonderware bought that, the, bought the IP and that became the seed money for uh, Lighthammer. And Lighthammer was really focused now more on that kind of uniform visualization. We called it the plan information portal initially. So we were writing connectors to SCADA, to you know, to OPC stuff, to historians, to SQL databases, but it was more like visualization, right? So, you know, web-based, um, we, we had, interestingly, we took a lot of business from the historian providers instead of their kind of native uh, trend viewers yeah. in a browser now. You could have it on your mobile device. You could have it from a remote site. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. From a technical perspective, did you transform all data and events into time series style yep. event storage? Okay, got it. So all we, right. Actually, we didn't. The, that one was more about leave it in because we didn't have the cloud then. It was leave it in the system. Oh, in the native the seat of, right. the system of ownership. Okay, got it. So we had a uniform data structure and then we had a um, uniform historical access API that if the underlying data store, for example, didn't do aggregates or time-weighted averages or whatever, you do that in the kind of adapter layer. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Java applets, you know, it's what we had at the time, right? Java applets, web server, serving right. up ML, you know. The, you had basically two choices, ActiveX or Java applets, right? So. Exactly. We, yeah. And you know why I joke? And if, there's a fun, there's some funny videos if you look uh, about SVG and like the early days. SVG almost died, but if you think about it, at the time when we were doing Lighthammer, you couldn't draw a circle. You, you couldn't draw a circle in a web browser. And it sounds stupid, right? But you right. literally couldn't draw a circle in a web browser. So at SVG and stuff like that, you know, we've we've all taken advantage of that. Anyway, so that did that started doing real well. And then once we realized we kind of now had an API to all these different systems, right? Um, that it was useful not only for people visualizing it, but to integrate it with other business processes. Yeah, on the business side, right? Yeah. 
So, so that's where SAP comes in. SAP sees the same thing you are already aware of. Yeah. And they're like, hey, we want that. that. Interestingly, a customer told them that. Our biggest customer, um, and our biggest customer at the time was Dow Corning. And um, when they gave us their biggest order, true story, CIO flew in. We had went out for dinner. And just as a joke, they had one of those like golf tournament size checks that they brought out. Did <laughs> they, they really? Yeah, because they knew they were kind of like launching us, right? It was kind of yeah. cool. We had a great relationship for, you know, for... In fact, I did a bunch of uh, consulting for them uh, just on the house after, you know, many years later, just to say, I'm, thank you. you. You have to appreciate what your customers have done for you. It matters, right. you know, pay it forward. So right now you're in, so we're in early 2000s. It, is that? So 2005, we got acquired by SAP, right? And they, you know, they took it from 7 million to like 50 million in sales the first year because they're pervasive, right? Right. Um Similar oh, and there was and there was already a loaded market, right? I mean, at that point, right? You you're un, you're unlocking all this value in that ERP layer, but there's no like there's no unification to you know your operations, right? And so in all along comes this web-based tool that can tap into both, right? So and and quite frankly, if you look at their customer base, it's it's a who's who of manufacturing, right? right? Yeah. And SAP has that relationship where like you know, here's what we're, guy pulls open his coat. Here's what we're selling this, this year, right? So we were in Vogue and it sold a lot. Um, but typical big co, right? They're, they're a great company, awesome culture. But if you're an innovator, you know, we spent probably two years just SAPizing the product, not right. making it functionally. And I'm a creator, right? So I, I did get a cool gig though. Then I, I moved over to SAP Research doing something called Future Factory, and we, so we were doing interesting stuff around. Uh, remember that project? I actually remember that project. Augment. So we did like uh, additive manufacturing and right. in, indoor position, all kinds of experimental stuff. Once again, it created this light bulb moment. Um, we had an initiative called Real World Awareness, and the idea was if other if business processes in retail uh, manufacturing public safety and security, whatever, healthcare could be intersect with the physical world, what could happen, right? Could it be better? Again, like, so I, I put together this whole pitch. It was, called, was originally going to be called SAP Softworks, right? And it was like, I had the pitch and um, the problem is it's very difficult as, you, as anyone that's been in a large uh, organization to do organic innovation, right? It just funded, approved, it's pulling zero sum game, and there were there were some ways we I, with enough patience probably could have gotten it done, but I gave it my best, and then we decided uh, you know that's that's not going to work out. I then did a little detour there, went over back to Wonderwear a third time. By the way, the first two times I left Wonderwear, my wife got pregnant, so I was kind of worried if I let you know if I went back. I only wanted two kids, but I went back um, and. I, I kind of brought the same idea, right? Here's this opportunity to connect all these other data sources to, to expand what we've learned. Think of what we learned in SCADA and automation, right. and how it translates perfectly into IoT stuff. We solve hard problems, right? Right. That things blow up. They have to work reliably, right? You know, it's, anyway, so um, I'm, you know, I tried to pitch that at Wonderware, just again, kind of for a variety of reasons, it wasn't going to work out. And, and you were there at the time when they were investing an enormous amount of money in the development of system plat, the expansion of system platform. Yeah. Ten dot one got launched under your under your uh, right. You know, I mean, so 
I mean, they were already investing a, a shit ton of capital in, you know, they they're right. They were all in on system platform right at that. I mean, that's literally you were there right at that time. And maybe that's one of the reasons that they, you know, weren't going to invest I, I, somewhere else. I would also say Walker that it had to do with um, a very negative experience that the company had with the acquisitions in MES, right? Because they didn't pan out, they didn't. So it was like anything out of our core. Think of what OSIsoft went through the years. Like every time they would, you know, try to go too far afield of the historian, it didn't go that well. Right. I think kind of like retreated to the known and missed opportunity. Um, this is what you know. If, if some bigger companies figure this out one day, how to innovate organically, they'll do fine. But I've I've yet to see anybody that really knows how to do it. Well, there I I have a couple of opinions. No, I two opinions. Number one. In the software world, the best way to innovate organically is to create a platform that lends itself to innovation in an isolated environment where it can be plugged into the platform. So in the software world, it, you know, and this is what inductive automation, by the way, does. They do two things, I think, exceptionally well. Number one, Carl, Carl uh, Gold and Kobe Clegg are maniacal in their focus on, on the five pillars of the platform, right? And there are so many ideas they shoot down because they simply don't live up to the, the pillars of the platform, right? They, you know, open, unlimited, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The other option, and I see, I'm seeing this more and more and more, and, and, you know, whether it's you're looking at Toyota AI Ventures or what you're looking at Tesla's offshoots, right? They're, the, what these organizations are doing is they're literally spinning up entire innovation groups that are separate companies that are not, that don't fall under the management structure of the parent company. And, and they're giving them a little bit of seed money and seeing what they can do. And, yeah. and that's another option. And, and, and it's crazy that a lot more tech companies don't, you know, don't take that approach because it's not that expensive. You know yeah. what I mean? For you, you can seed it for a couple hundred thousand dollars, which, you know, is nothing. I mean, it's literally nothing. And you give them a nine month window to show return and then, and then, you know, decide whether you're going to do series B and, you know, whatever. Preach. Or, man. Or, yeah. I, I agree. And then the, yeah. similar, like Google's actually, Alphabet's actually doing a little bit of that stuff. They right. just launched a robotics company the other day. I do think that the problem is the big co's have a tendency if they do, some have tried that, they reabsorb it too quickly, right? Yeah. Because the way you sell, the way you support, everything's different in an early company than a mature company. Yeah. Mainstreaming it too early and imposing all the, oh, it must be localized into 400 languages. It must be 5029 accessible. Those are all important things, but not early on when you're trying to figure well, out. Because process stifles, a commitment to process stifles innovation. And I mean, hell, you can't, you can't build new innovative. I mean, look at what inductive automation did when they launched in 02. It took them six years to figure it out. Tatsoft, I mean, 2008 was when was when inductive automation became a legit, you know, real ignition became an legit, legit platform. Tatsoft, same thing. Mark Tacalini and those guys were developing for like five years sure. before they were ready for the big time. And yeah. and these organizations that are doing these these offshoots, they if they're not committed to a five or six year development cycle right? It, it, they can be looking for value incrementally, you know, every nine months, every 12 months. Yeah, we're trending in the right direction. But you got to be prepared to let that go for four or five or six years before you try to bring it back into the organization proper. It's not mature enough before then. 
And I think that time frame, like I, I, I like to think I cheated at the, on the test in the sense that like having done, worked at all these other companies, wrote some of these other platforms, you kind of learn, it, it kind of gives you a jump start. Like if you looked at ThingWorks, for example, just event-driven execution, right? The way the script engine used to work in InTouch, you'd see, yep. you'd see byproducts of best practices, not, not patented or copyrighted shit, but best practices that you kind of build upon, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, can, that can compress that time. And I'm a believer in kick-ass teams, right? If you have a 10X, you, know, you hire 10Xers, you're, yep. you can do amazing stuff. So um, yeah, so the Wonderware gig didn't work out. We did, I, we started up ThingWorks, uh, kind of going after that real world awareness. Where where did that come from? So this is one of the big one of the big questions that I'm sure everybody wants to know is, how did you, when you left Wonderware, the after the you know and at that time that oh I think this is 2008 give or take in that region region yeah. right oh no you when did you I, I saw ThingWorks for the first time in 2013 or 14 I think is the first time I saw it or maybe maybe 12 it, it could have been as early as that but I think it was 13 14 yeah. a what where where did the idea come from and b how did you go ahead and implement it like what were the steps you went through. I pull this out all the time. Like, okay. this is literally like, that's where it came from. We got in a room. This is the original, like, uh, and this is the team that you kind of carry with you, you know, your core group. You exactly. sit down, and you say, oh, let's go ahead and brainstorm this. Exactly. There's four of us. And ThingWorks one, ThingWorks 0.1 was actually all .NET based. And then we kind of just threw all that away and kind of went HTML. You know, we, it was actually, it was Flash and, and .NET, as bizarro as that sound. Mm -hmm. We evolved it, kind of rewrote it a few times. I did, I wrote most of the platform code, kind of the, the guts code, but it, won, it came down to kind of what, um, maybe an earlier primitive version of what you would call UNS, right? It was like yeah. thing model. Hey, we fucked that up in the sense that we made, we invented too many new terms and it just like, took way too long for people to grok what we were, you know, some of these things. Well, thing, but thing, thing stood the test of time. It I did. mean, now, you know, in that, in that thing works world, everyone knows what a thing is, you know, and you, I mean, thing is a term that stuck. We just ended up like thing shapes and data shapes and all these. I, I, I read this book. What was it called? Man. Um, shaping things. Anyway, I, we, I went to, you know, some people like, grab onto some meme and then take it too far in their naming. Well, we kind of did that. Nevertheless, the product was, was solid. So um, what how was, long was the development from 09 to? Well, it was, I mean, it was ready to go usable in 11. Um, okay. Yeah. To, you know, you could actually deploy it. Um, I'd say that the interesting challenges though, was trying to deal um, the two really different domains, IOT, like, right. of, you know, a million connected, whatever's, Versus the world we know, IIoT with big chunky systems that you're pulling stuff yeah. out of, more on-prem. So trying to have it serve both masters was an interesting but kind of fun challenge. The, the secret sauce, if you really were just kind of cut to the chase of what I think we did well, was the thing model and the abstraction, right? Yep. If you could interact and compose the stuff. Um, event, you know, event driven. I know we're all passionate believers in, in the, in the high bite world or, or, or in, it, we call it data ops, right? It, it, data ops is the component thing, thing does what data ops does. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, creates the abstraction flows and high bite are the, are the event triggers and, and, and in that data ops platform, which I think is the best data ops platform available, but you know, thing works was way ahead of its time. 
I mean, it was definitely, well, it was the right, it was the right solution at the right time. Exactly. Right. It might not have evolved as, as much as I would have liked, but. And uh, you had the market cornered. At the time. I mean, you had the market cornered at the time. You really did. Well, what was cool is Cisco, IBM, all these other knuckleheads were doing all their uh, marketing about, you know, internet of this, smarter planet. They didn't have anything to deliver. And right? they were not delivering on it, right? Exactly. So, so they got everybody lathered up and like, well, we got something. Um, the color cool thing we did, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of, is we, um, we wrote a, a, a JavaScript engine that, that integrated with the JVM. Um, we kind of adapted some open source stuff. We gave, I'm, I believe if you use open source, you have to give back to it. So we, yep. we, uh, we shared most of what we did there. But we plugged in the whole thing model. So kind of like almost IntelliSense, right? You could you could do really cool kind of elegant stuff in the scripting environment. Um, so it was my focus was the platform, and then in the kind of the the circle of life thing, um, we, we, for the UX side, I ended up teaming up uh, Phil Huber, who was the founder of Wonderware. You know, yep. was a tour of mine, just huge fan. He had a team that of, of a company who had just been kind of essentially put out of business by, uh, by Apple overnight. So I had this great team and we're like, dude, let's, let's get it. Let's do this. So he built um, our, our next gen of our UI, all HTML5 based, the mashup environment, just killer team. And that was important because the coolest stuff in the world, like all UNS and everything, people like to demo it. You need a face, right? You need something, you need an ID, you need an app, you need a whatever. So that kind of brought it to life. Now, like you could actually show people what it could do, uh, go into a customer site and, you know, in an hour have data coming up in a screen. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, so the PTC acquisition, so that happened in 15, right? 15, uh, 13. No, actually, 13. End of, yep, end of 13. And, and wh where did that, where did that come from? And, and so I was, just to clarify, I was the CTO. I was the tech dude. Um, did I benefit? Sure, of course. I was a shareholder like everybody else. Um, we were about to do our Series C. The biggest inflection point for a lot of software companies um, that are in that kind of... You scale, got, or sell. Got scale, got scale or sell. Scale or sell. Scale or sell. Or die, right? Scale or die. Um, is growing your, growing your sales and support organizations. So yep. We're going to raise like 10 million bucks, which at the time was a shit ton of money. Now it's like, what a lame raise that would be, right? But whatever. I'm, I'm a believer in capital efficiency. Nevertheless, uh, we're about to do that. And um, uh, PTC, uh, Jim, Jim Heppelman had a very similar vision, like, okay, what happens if you could like bring product designs to life with, with IoT data or, you know, and you loop it back into the engineering process. So he actually, to your point about different innovation models, he took a bunch of his key, his best of his best, put them off in a separate location in Cambridge and said, Go develop something. Well, somewhere along the way, we met someone on that team and they came down and, and met with us. And they're like, you know, went back and they said, you know, we could we could build it or we could get like a three-year jump by doing something with these guys. So we originally started as kind of an OEM relationship. Got it. We're in the funding mode. Um, they, so they basically bought our future is kind of what the best way to describe it. We were fully ready to just keep going like we were going. Um, so yeah, so we were probably about 50 people at the time. Um, and then as soon as we got, you know, acquired, then the resource, you know, now we're 400 people. Sometimes that's not great, right? Sometimes it's good. I mean, you, you appreciate the love. I think we might've over-accelerated things a little bit. You kind of mm -hmm. lose 
some of that. I don't know. I'm a believer in smaller teams, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I build, I'm a firm believer. I build all my teams using a T-based team building model. So, you know, top of the T is the, the SME, the thing that makes that human being unique. The, okay. the, the, the bottom part of the T is the one thing we all have in common, the, the thing we're all working towards. And I, I believe that teams greater than 20, as soon as you hit the 20 mark, that's when efficiency diminishing returns starts flying in. And, and so if you want to be agile and fast and, and innovative, you, it's 20 or smaller working with no middle management using only subject matter experts and, and the subject matter expert is managing their subject matter. But at, I mean, at, at some point you have to scale above 20. So I think the from the pizza, executive level, two pizza roll. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, it, I'll, from, I'll, Right. From the, from the executive level, what you have to decide is what mode we're in with this product, what mode we're in with this business. If we're in a growth mode, then we're going to go ahead and accept less innovation for growth. But if we're in innovation mode, then we, we have to say, okay, growth is going to be slow so that we can innovate. Right. And there are going to be way more hurdles. There are going to be, um, you know, a lot more bugs, you know, a lot more sleepless nights in the, when we're in innovation mode. And that's a different, and that's, you're exactly right. That's a strat, that's a, uh, uh, that's a choice you have to make. Correct. This, I, I will say, uh, and this is a, f- a philosophy or a theory or whatever. I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that to get, so you get to that point, which I completely agree with, right? 15, 20 people, you start to lose productivity. This is where I think the whole um, technical architecture can come into play in the sense right. that extensibility and APIs and all, if you can uh, decouple certain parts of your product, the, the UX can evolve at one pace, the platform another, connectivity at another, add-ins at another. Now you can start to have like three or four 20-person teams that can run exactly. somewhat asynchronous, yep. but it takes a lot of discipline, right? To, to, to not break those, you know, to, to have that architecture early enough. The magic happens then, of course, when it's a whole ecosystem that can start doing that innovation. And right. The, the, just the concept that a company nowadays wouldn't deliver an open API on their product is to me. And it's, <laughs> I so, go on, I, I go on more rants. I uh, go on more rants on that one subject than any other subject I go on rants on. Well, that and ERP, but what, what's the possible, I don't, I just don't even get the possible rationale behind that. I mean, it, it, for no other selfish reason that it now allows your own team to innovate faster. The, the, well, the, I, I, I think, I don't, I think that they, you know, here, here's what I think. I don't say this very often, but I think most of the players in our industry mean well, and the vast majority have are suffering from imposter syndrome. And if you are not confident, if you, if you believe you're faking it, then you are going to be very, you're going to be very careful about what you share with other people because you are afraid they'll discover you're faking it. Right. And you'll never see a developer more vulnerable than when they're going to show you their source. Right. And, and, and a, a software development API is as close when you get to that, that API to do that's as close as you're getting to source. And it may, I honestly think it makes imposters feel incredibly uncomfortable. And I really believe that that is one of the key reasons that you will see people at the top you know, you're different. My, you're an executive who has a lot of technical aptitude. And I know that you've been focused on the CTO side, but I can tell you, you know, this as well as I do, you are more adept. You are more technically adept than the average CTO in our industry. Most of the CTOs that I meet in our industry have absolutely no business being in the role that they're in. Um, 
the, the, their, their vertical, their expertise is, is, you know, it's, it's a 10th, it's, it's a 20th, it's a hundredth of what it needs to be. You have a really broad breadth of knowledge. And it's obvious. One of the questions I was going to ask you earlier was, you know, did you calculate, you know, you did a, you took a very similar path that I took, right. And we've never spoken one. I had a whole strategy about, I need to expose myself to as many industries and as many technologies as humanly possible. And I also need, I got, I need to be in a product development and I need to be in operations and I need to be in, in engineering. I need to be in product engineering. I need to learn all these various things. And that was calculated. Was sure. it calculated for you or did, was it just sort of where I ended up? I think it's a little bit of both, Walker. I think it's like, there's always a little revisionist history. So I preach right. that now, right? How important that is. I think from a lot of sense, it sort of happened. I forgot I did it. It's not unlike I did a stint in high-speed printing, for example, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? We have a so lot crazy. of crazy. So crazy. But um, yeah, junk, literally like the, 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 the largest junk mail, we built our own machines. It was pretty amazing. But um, yeah, so this Whitman sampler uh, or Lego, the Lego blocks you accumulate over time, mm -hmm. it's just as much different domains, but also those different roles. Like I got to tell you for doing, being involved in software startups, having been on the sales side was huge for me, right? That, that seeing that side of it, pr pricing is the, like the most black art thing, you know, you can't figure it. it's, but uh, how to deal with a channel and what's important to them. And uh, anyway, um, so Bottom line is, yeah, I 100% agree. I'm a lifelong learner. I, I, I believe in you know, having that kind of diverse background. For me, I guess it happened a bit by luck. And then I kind of realized, hey, that's probably a good way to conduct myself. It's funny you said about the lifelong learner. I was dropping my sons off at school today. And, um, and my son, Jared, my 17-year-old, he asked me this question. I don't remember what the actual question was, but I do remember what my answer was. Um, he... Well, no, he, here's what it was. Uh, someone asked me, um, hey, if, dad, have you read the book, The Children of Men? And, and, um, and I said, yeah. And, and I said, oh, and, and I gave a synopsis. And, and my son asked, dad, is there like nothing, is there nothing you haven't read? Like, why is it you never say, oh, I never read that or whatever? And I said, Jared, I'm going to give you the same answer Gary V gives all of his friends when they ask him, how are you a gazillionaire now? And he says, because when you were at Jersey, you were at the Jersey shore and you were going to bars and partying, I was grinding. And I, I say to my kids all the time, you know, I spend 90 minutes each night reading just tech journals. I, I, I literally set aside 90 minutes to go through technical descriptions of new products coming out in our industry. And I said, and I do that five, six days a week, yep. you add up that 90 minutes, five, six days a week. And then you add up the an hour I do every single morning that's totally outside of my work. And those hours at, you know, I'm 47, but I probably have the experience of someone who's 57, right? Because of all those additional hours I've added. And that's maybe another 10,000 hours, 12,000 hours. This is why intrinsic motivation, lifelong learning, it's so critical because though, you know, that one hour doesn't sound like a lot, but that one hour added with another 1,999 hours means a whole lot. It's a whole year of experience, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, um, and it's funny, everybody I talk to like you, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, uh, people who have broad and diverse experience, they all say the exact same thing that, you know, it's, I'm a lifelong learner. The other thing, I mean, everybody talks about hustle and this and that, and it matters a lot, but luck does too, right? Yeah. I, I would always admit that we, you know, sometimes it's timing. You can make yourself more lucky. You can yep. 
put yourself in the right place to be lucky, but I would never discount the importance of stuff like that too. There's a lot of bright people on the planet, right? Doing yeah. awesome shit. Um, so, and if you're, and if you're successful, this is another thing. If you're a really successful person, you are rarely the smartest person in the room right. because really, really successful people, they, when they realize, when they look around and they're like, I'm the smartest one here, they go find another room with smarter people. And, and, and then you have other people who want to be a big fish in a little pond and they want to be the smartest person in the room. And one of the biggest things is continuously moving to teams where, or into rooms that you, where you are challenged, where they elevate your game. You know, it's a huge, that's a huge component of lifelong success, you know? And I think, you know, I was luck, again, lucky, right. I encountered people early in my career that became like key to all the things that we did. We worked together so well um, that then these are just some of the best, you know, the best that were out there, but, for but sure. you also pursued excellence, right? I mean, one of the things, this is another, you know, this is something I talk about in my book, which is not related to industrial automation. And I'm going to go on a little sidebar here, but I, I think it'll be valuable for the audience. Um, something that most people don't know about me is, um, I wrote for a magazine, uh, called trap shooting USA for about a year and a half. When I worked at Newcore steel in 2009, 2010, my my dad, who I talk about, my adoptive father, he's a he's a you know he's in the trap shooting hall of fame for New York State. He was a, a really famous trap shooter since you lived in PA for a really long time. Like all most of the best trap shooters in American history are from Pennsylvania, including a guy named Frank Little, who's I could have worn my Beretta hat, and I've actually gotten a sporting clay lesson from Anthony Mataresi. So I... and, and and I actually know Tony. <laughs> I actually know him personally. You know so. The, my dad shot for Beretta initially, then he went to Remington and then he went to Sites. And, and Sites is who he shoots for now, which is another interesting story. They were a machine shop, a guy, Jerry Smith in Maryland or something. He owned a machine shop who he made tooling for manufacturers and he decided I'm going to build the greatest gun ever made. And he literally just built it from scratch called Sites, S-E-I-T-Z, if you want to see it. But um, so I, I wrote for this magazine for a year and a half. I, didn't, I, I took one class in college called Media Writing. And everybody asks me, you know, how did you end up writing for that magazine, right? And this is about the pursuit of excellence thing. And here, here's, here's the story behind it. And I think you're going to have a gazillion examples as well. The, I, my, I wanted to follow my dad around while I was shooting. And trap shooting is a very, very expensive sport. And, you know, I worked at Newcore. I made good money. I had a six-figure salary. But it was, I didn't have the kind of salary where I could raise my young kids and go travel with my dad. So, I would go around, I brought a, a, a high-speed sport camera with me and I would take photos of my dad and all of the guys he shot with at these huge trap shooting events. I mean, we're talking 200, 300 houses, you know, and, and you know, you have thousands of people shooting over a course of a week. And I got really good at taking action shots where people would shoot and, they, you know, like, and I could, I could catch the clay pigeon over their shoulder, you know, blowing apart, you know, and that was before you could take 30 photos you know, in, in one, you know, just pull and just find the one where it worked. And then I went on a, a blog called trapshooters.com and I would, and I basically would write articles. I would basically do a post and I would do a summation of the, you know, and I would put hours and hours and hours into writing these posts. And my wife would be like, what is wrong with like this? You know, that's a, a huge investment for a hobby. And then all of a sudden, but, but I, I, ha I wanted my posts to be the best posts I wanted to be the, I wanted them to be the post that everybody would read. And then all of a sudden this publisher from England sends me an email and he says, Hey, I really love what you're doing on trapshooters.com. Would you be interested 
in doing that for my magazine. So doing exactly what you do right now on trapshooters.com, except you do it for Trap Shooting USA. And what's really cool, is it's, it's really kind of crazy. I actually still have the copy at my house. In 2009, there was a guy named David Schaefer from Maryland who, he was a plumber from Maryland, who he ended up breaking the world record for the most consecutive broken registered targets, you know, and he broke it by like a thousand birds, 2,200 something. And I reached out to Dave and I, I said, Hey Dave, I would love to just like travel with you and interview you. And he's like, man, every, every reporters, you know, I said, well, you know, my dad's Jerry Ostrander and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a working class dude. I know you're a plumber. I work in a steel mill. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And I, I got to hang with him for a whole week. I got to write the profile. And that, and my photo was on the cover of that magazine. I took the photo on that magazine. I wrote four articles in there, plus the feature. I still have that magazine to this day. And when people come to my house, they're like, I didn't even know you were a writer. I'm like, well, I wasn't. I, I did it for like a year and a half. But the point was, was that the reason I believe that was possible, and this goes to your success. So the reason I believe that was possible is because of all of the attention to detail in pursuit of excellence, Right. When you, and I guarantee, I don't know you that well, but I already know that when you're writing code, you know, you are very hard on yourself about the way you write your code. You pursue excellence in anything that you're developing. And when you do that, amazing things happen to you. Yes, it's about luck. Yes, it's about the people you know, but you also attract the right people because you pursue excellence and you generate your own luck. And this is a, a really, really important point that I try to, drive home to people all the time when they ask me the question, you know, how do I do what you did? Or, Hey, Rick, how do I, how did, how did you do thing works and how do I copy it? Well, part of it's, it's not just the technical details. It's not just building the team. A huge piece of it is up, up in here. It's mindset. It's the way you approach everything you do, the way you parent that, you know, the way you drive, the way you take care of your cars, everything. So I don't know if you agree or not. I hope. And, and I love the other content that you produce too, which is non-technical, non-IOT stuff, just to help. Right. I mean, I, I also find, and this is, maybe, maybe it's a little, maybe it's a little self certain not self-serving is not the right word. Um, one thing I found recently is the importance of giving back, like whether it's mentoring, philanthropy. Uh, I do a lot of stuff like, because... A, manuf domestic manufacturing is super important to me. So how can I help? That's why I joined your Discord. I think it's, right. and everyone should, by the way, you should be in on, you should be here learning and contributing. Second thing is um, startups, sharing, sharing the shit that I already learned, right? The hard way. If I can help accelerate them or keep them out of some, you know, quicksand or whatever. Also, I don't, just because, right? Um, and you know, that's a sizable percentage of what I'm doing right now. I'm spending two and a half, I call it work, right? But it's, you know, it's a little, it's like a couple hours here and there, just helping some interesting companies doing cool stuff. Um, and I just feel that's part of what we collectively have to do. Is, have is, you read, do you know who David Brooks is? You know, David Brooks from the New York Times. He, he does, a, does a thing on PBS on Friday night. Anyway, he's a, he's a social scientist. Okay. Uh, he wrote a book called The Second Mountain. Have you, have you heard the... Okay. It came out a couple of years ago. He basically says that all of us climb two mountains in our lives, right? Mountain number one is the, is the mountain you climbed from 1985 to 2013, right? Okay. And mountain number two is the mountain you're climbing right now, which is, you know, making the difference, like now taking the good fortune and making the difference. And everybody does this. 
We try to climb two mountains. Um, and, and I highly recommend anyone to read the book because it, it really reveals to you how we change as human beings over time as a function of our own success. You can go two routes. You can become sort of the Donald Trump's of the world where, you know, he's going to be an alpha businessman his whole life. He's going to die in his three piece suit. Right. And, and, and then there are those, the other ones who decide I'm going to, I'm going to give back everything I, I made and I'm going to give it back to, to have a positive impact on, on the world, which is why we started producing content. You know, you talked about, you don't want startups to fall in the same quicksand. We started shooting the content because we kept seeing manufacturers making the same mistakes over and over and over again, same technical debt, wasting the same amount of money. In some cases, the manufacturers didn't get a second bite at the Apple. Some of them closed. Some of them just didn't have the CapEx to, to make a second investment to undo the technical debt to help them successfully digitally transform. And when I told Zach, I said, Zach, what I want to do is shoot content and tell people what not to do. I, I want to educate the community, tell them what not to do, avoid these pitfalls. Here's what you should do. I said, can we do that? And he said, we can do it. And that's where it all came from. And it turned into this you know, amazing community, which you joined and, and which brings me to my, my second, my next point, which is when you and I were having our initial conversation and when I did the IOT, what it was it that we called it the IOT shootout or whatever, right? One of the things that I said in that video is I don't know what Rick values. Like, I don't know what his mission is because that's not something that's like made public. I do know now through our conversations, I know that, you know, you, you know, you're a, you're a, a mission focused values-based guy. You want to have a positive impact. It's same, same thing. You want to save manufacturing, all, all that stuff. But can you, you know, take a second to sort of explain what it is your values and mission are and where do you think that came from? And you had mentioned your dad and, you know, you know, your dad was a mechanical engineer, right? And, and, and I'm assuming a lot of that extended from, sure. you know, his, how he raised sure. you, but. I was pre yeah I was predisposed to going down the engine. My my dad was a, a mechanical engineer, worked at a forge, uh, and I remember going into the plant, you know, nine years old, and these giant machines slamming and things fire, and like this is awesome. My dad's Superman. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> right. Um, so I was kind of predisposed to go. There. Unfortunately, he passed away when I was when I was very young. Um, but I had a uh, have still have an awesome mom who uh, who helped us you know through that. Um, but I don't know, I guess one, one aspect uh, to be perfectly honest is working my first gig at Lucan's on the floor. I love the people I was working with. I loved right. what I was doing. And I, it, it fucking bugs me when people treat like, like manufacturing workers, like replaceable cogs, it, it yep. just torques me hundred percent, man. And I want to, you know, they're, they've historically been underserved either not given the influence over what we do with the technology. I'd love to see them be able to tweak their own experience for what is important to them. Right. We call it, we call it unlocking potential on the plant floor. And that's exactly what we're saying. Right on, man. And by the way, thank you for everything, you know, your collective community does. It is, it is important and it does matter. Thank you. Um, and then, you know, just along the way, I mean, and maybe this is naive, but like, if you, if you make your customers successful and make your customers money, everything else happens, right? right. You just, all, you, you'll, you'll do just fine. So I've seen too many companies that they're you know, built to flip, built, to, built around some other objective besides making something awesome that brings value to, to other people. Um, and by so the way, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with people being 
pure capitalists, and I'm okay with someone building an organization just to flip it. Here's what I'm not okay with. I am not okay with that being your intention and you communicate your intention as something else. I'm not okay with that. I didn't, and there are many automation companies. One of the first questions I ask them when they say, hey, Walker, we want you to promote our product or whatever, or, or evaluate it and then promote it. I will say that for, I talk about values. It's the first thing I talk about. What, what, what's your goal here? What's your mission? You know, and, and there's many companies where they try to act like they're not, you know, I'm not building this to flip it, but it's really clear that they are. I mean, and, and I'll say like, this is a standard three-year, you know, acquisition strategy you've, that you just showed me. And you're telling me you're not building this company to sell it to Schneider or sell it to Rockwell or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, I'm like, I've seen this a million times before. This is, this is acquisition. This is M&A focus. When you do, when you do a, a deal, there's four stakeholders. Everybody thinks of just one or two. There's your customers. Here's your employees. Those should be the first two, right? Right. Yeah. Then, then is your investors and yourselves, right? But um, one thing that I think uh, is important that companies should think about it when they're going through this process, because by the way, there's going to be a shit ton of consolidation and M&A and, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to get rich. A lot of people are going to be left behind. The next 10 years is going to be insane. Chaos. But what I'm worried about is, is the customers and what and the and the partners and the whole ecosystem. Like you can't leave them behind. I'm, I'm not, I won't go too deep into specifics, but our first, we had two people, two, two suitors interested in, in Lighthammer. And it really mattered um, about for our customer, primarily first two groups, customers and employees, what's going to be the best place, right? Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to say that SA for that deal. SAP was the right place for that. We, I have probably 50% of that company was a very small company at the time is still working at SAP. That makes me feel really good. Wow. Like, and it was a good place for them, a good place to build a career. And, and I, again, if it's just a financial transaction, that's a shitty way to be right. And I, I get it. And people do that. I, 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 I will judge them. I'll be honest with you. I, I do. I don't think that's the right way to do it. Um, and, 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 you know, the thing works, it wasn't, it was premature. We weren't ready to go. It was sort of the proverbial offer you couldn't refuse. And, and right. I, we had a lot of talks with them. They were, they were, they invested. Look what they've done with bringing AR into the mix and kept where right. I mean, done some cool stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, there's pros and cons of everything. I guess all I'm saying here is put those, put those two constituencies towards the front too, if for the, the other vendors in our collective community, because that does matter. A lot. I, I, I agree with you 100%. And I want to drive home another a point you had already made, which is, you know, I, I am, I believe in the rank and file. I, one of the things that I learned by starting on the plant floor, I re- when I graduated from college, this is an interesting story. When I graduated from college, I threw my own graduation party at my house. And because I put myself through school, I'd already bought my house in upstate New York, and I threw it in the backyard and built a deck and everything. And my dad came to the graduate, my party, and he walks around back and we're having a beer and he puts his arm on my shoulder and he says, you know, I'm proud of you. You know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college and graduate. And he says, I'm, I'm proud of you, but I'm here to give you some, some real truth. He said, nothing you learn in school makes a bit of difference in the real world. He said, your education starts today. That's what he said. Amen. And I'm glad he said that because I wasn't like the rest of the college graduates in my first job. And most of them came in thinking, you know, the same thing. They're, they're the smartest person in the room, all that stuff. I went in there terrified 
that, holy crap, I don't know anything because my dad told me my education doesn't mean anything. And what I learned was he was absolutely right. There is absolutely no um, replacement for experience. And, and what I learned, you know, where I worked at Cargill and a salt mine to start with. And then I, you know, and then I went to Vanguard media and then I went to Newcore steel. And then I went to a tier one automotive supplier. Um, what I learned was two things. Number one, the smartest people in any facility work on the plant floor. They know all the problems. They know how to fix all the problems. All you gotta do is listen to them or enable them. One of the two. The second thing I learned is that because most of the people work on the plant floor, they are much more likely to lack soft skills or super high emotional intelligence or, you know, how to, how to navigate the political landscape. We, their ideas fall through the cracks They're there and, and they get dismissed over yep. and over and over again. And when we do our digital transformation maturity assessment, and there are clients who are watching this right now who know exactly what I'm about to say. When we do our DTMA, we have a meeting with the senior leadership. There's a, there's a 90 minute meeting I have most of the time with the board of directors, sometimes just a bunch of senior VPs or whatever. And my very first question is, do you understand that you are not the smartest people in your organization? That's, and, do, and do you also believe that the smartest people in your organization are out there, the rank and file on the plant floor, and that it is your job to enable them to solve your problems? That's literally what I... And, and, and it, it, it warms my heart to hear you say what you said, because it's something I have believed my entire career wholeheartedly. And it's some, and I've been dedicated to trying enabling, you know, the rank and file to solve the organization's problems. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I think more and more people are adopting that mindset, but not fast enough in my opinion. That, and I think the, the challenges with staffing in manufacturing these days, right. Unfortunately, I think some leadership is almost going the other way. How can I create, like, use technology to, to turn every manufacturing employee into a replaceable, get them up to speed quick, but make them easily replaceable? You're not going to build that body of knowledge. You can't do continuous improvement that right. way. It's just not going to happen. You, 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 make- also, you, can't, you can't write programs to innovate the way human beings innovate. Right. And- that's, that's the thing, right? It's, Human being, I say this all the time, human beings are not good at data collection. They are not good at data aggregation. They're not good at monotony. Yep. That's where software, that's where technology comes in. But human beings, especially Americans, especially Americans, are, they're off the charts in terms of their innovative capabilities. Human beings are outstanding at innovating as long as you create an environment where that is fostered. You know, agree to agree a hundred percent. And failure and failure's not chastised, it, or uh, failure with good intent, right? Right. Is not punished, right? Yeah. Fail, well, you, you know, you didn't lose, you learn, right? You, you know, failure is part of the pro. In fact, <laughs> another thing my dad used to say: if you, you know, if you, if you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk, you know, and 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 risk is where you get the biggest reward, you know. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. So the, to, I know we're to, to close it out, like last couple of questions here, I'd love to hear your take on two things. Number one, in the discord, you talked about, Hey, here's what's really missing in the industry is this, this next, this component between L3, L4, L4, L5, wherever we put it, which is basically this abstraction, this abstraction layer on top of the unified namespace or on top of the ecosystem. So if you could expand on what you talked about that, just to, to elaborate on it, I know what you're talking about, but I'd like to, the community sure. to hear you elaborate. 
And then if you can follow that up with, you know, where do you think the industry's going? What encourages you? What discourages you? Where do you think we're going to end up? Sure. Um, first of all, as you've, if you've ever, those who have like looked at my LinkedIn stuff, I'm an instigator by, you know, I think we share that as we're not afraid. <laughs> by the way, if you don't follow Rick on LinkedIn, you should. You absolutely should be following Rick on LinkedIn. So I definitely like to, you know, a yeah. pro, pro level trolling, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but my actually my little, my little uh, uh, iconography my was uh, bullshit police. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I don't like hype. I don't like BS. I like to kind of call it, but ultimately um, I joined because I'm trying to find people that actually care about moving the ball forward. Right. right. Like-minded people that don't have like that that quite frankly are just i mean i'll I'll admit i didn't understand the whole uns concept and what you guys had already put together i'm super impressed by the way so thank you the areas like to me that we can expand upon that are like and this is just experiential augmenting those models with um i call them services and methods like what when when it's beyond going beyond data, what other capability? So we're just thinking generically, what are other things we can decorate that namespace with that become composable pieces, right? So that's kind of one of the things I want to help contribute, right? And the microservices piece that you talk about is the most intriguing to me because it is a piece that is glaringly missing, right? From the current architecture. And it's sort of, un- unfortunately, it's sort of the, when you, particularly when you're looking upwards, that's the action end, right? The action. <laughs> of new kinds of analytics or whatever, or even just simple events, it's like, okay, I got to call something and do something. So anyway, that's, that's a philosophical thing. Um, free, you know, this, the quote unquote standards that are trying to address this, the digital twin, this, that, whatever, they're all, in my opinion, they're all bullshit. They're just classic vendor lock-in, you know, keep, keep other people out. We'll kind of take what we already have, warm it over and which sucks, right? I just don't like the way that a lot of these groups operate. But um, if we do nothing else, but, and I think as you've just done an amazing job of this, is sharing best practices, right? It doesn't have to be a standard. If it helps people do things better, we, you know, let's, let's do it. Um, er, you know, areas that I'm super intrigued on right now, so some are kind of technical, some are more vision and aspirational. I think there is an opportunity for a next-gen edge, like Rethinking, it's almost like a distributed OS for manufacturing. And one of the companies calls it, you know, manufacturing. But like, what are those foundational services that integrators, OEMs can build from so they don't have to all, the more that they're all doing plumbing, the more that they're all doing kind of basic ML shit, a waste of time, right? Right. How do we unlock their innovation? Not just, so, and it's it's difficult for the cloud vendors to do this um, because they don't have, simply put, they don't have a monetization model for it. They know how to monetize the cloud. They don't know how to monetize the edge or they used to, but they forgot. Um, so uh, it's, it's wide open, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Second thing is I'm a believer in augmentative technology, right? Let's empower people with technology, whether it's robot, collaborative robotics, whether it's uh, because you know what? The human hand, you were talking about their stuff. Humans can still, we're not even close to duplicating the human hand with a, ro- a robot. Agreed. Right? And our, our vision, you know, our ability, a human vision system can learn something in two samples, right? That's a duck, that's a tree, right? It needs like a huge amount of data to try. Anyway, I think we're, you know, something. So augmentative technology that helps people be more effective. Um, that, that, that's, that's a lot of my little lab here is all kinds of stuff around that, robotics and so on. Um, 
you know, those basically that's where I would like to see the investment is just empowerment. Um, I, I think it's important. And we had a brief little discussion on the discord, one of the customer guys. And I think you actually hit on this in, in, in your Emerson rant. Customers are the ones that need to start holding their their balls to the fire. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to buy from you if you don't offer these capabilities to me. Right. Close. Yep or just define what those are. You, customers don't realize in, in, in mass how much leverage they have, right? Um, so I would love to see, you know, customers start speaking up. The other problem I have, and this is where I think an, a group like what we're building you know, around, around the Discord uh, forum and however we want to do this, is when, you, when, you, uh, when analysts ask people a question or a vendor asks someone, what, what are your problems? I believe that humans have a natural tendency to bound their answer by what they think the art of the possible is, right? That's right. So there might be 10 things that they would love to be able to do, but they're just, they aren't familiar with a solution that, that could be possible. We as a community need to just help people through that, right? It's just like, get them out of that thinking of constrained by the art of the possible, because you'd be amazed at what's possible. You want to hear something funny here. So yeah. I'm going to, so, you know, uh, Cyril Perdicat, he's the, Senior Vice President and C, right CTO at Rockwell in under Industrial AI. Yeah. So someone shared a podcast that he did. He, he was on uh, Momentum's podcast on the Digital Thread um, that he did on September fifteenth, and it was a guy in Spain said, "Hey Walker, you're definitely going to want to listen to this." So uh -oh. I was listening to it, and Cyril said, "So, so here to to your exact point, I want to I'm going to take a shot at Cyril at the at the same time I I comment on what you said." The art of the possible is so important, right? It really is. And one of the things, when I go into a room, when I'm initially presenting with an organization, I'll ask this question. Hey, here, who's heard of SCADA? Who's heard of Industry 4.0? Who's heard of ERP? Who's heard of MES? And then everybody raises their hand. And I go, great, forget everything you've ever known about any of those things. For, for the next 90 minutes, I want you to be thinking about a problem you've been trying to solve that, that you have not found a solution for. It doesn't have to be a technical problem. It could be any problem, okay? Um, and it could be a problem you've had for a week, a month, a year, 10 years. I want you to be thinking about that problem. I'm going to solve one of your problems at the end of this presentation. I'm going to show you that there's a solution exists today, and I'm going to do it during this presentation. That's number one. Number two, I say the game has changed, okay? Technology has – there are things that you convinced yourself you discovered 15 years ago are going to cost too much money and take too much time. So you have eliminated those from the realm of possibility in your brain. Today, they're possible. So what you've got to do is erase that from your brain. And so here's how we're going to do that. We're going to start by, on this whiteboard, we are going to build your perfect facility. Not within the constraints of what you already have, but if we were to blow the building up yep. and start from scratch using new technology, what would we build? What would your business workflows be? What, how would, what would process control look like? What would, how, would you, uh, how would you organize the human resources? How would you communicate between systems and human resources? We're going to do that from scratch. And what's really funny is that Cyril Perdicat, he, he took my language nearly word for word <laughs> in this podcast. And I think this is the reason the guy sent it to me. Like, hey, Rockwell has heard loud and clear what you've been saying and they're using your language and, 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 I mean, you know, and Cyril for all intents and purposes may believe it a hundred percent and he's all in, yeah. you know what I mean? 
But what makes me feel good is that even now Rockwell is communicating using the same language that we're using to help change the, the way customers, what they consider is within the realm of possibility. And I want to say this one last thing back to the customer piece. I was, I met with a, a, one of our biggest customers. actually they're one of the largest manufacturers in the world, uh, yesterday morning. Um, you know, I think they have a hundred thousand employees or something crazy. And, um, they've been working with, you know, Rockwell and, you know, all the big vendors and they had us come in and peer review what all those large companies recommended to them. Yep. And I was meeting with their steering team, their digital transformation global steering team. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm about to tell you guys something I don't think you've considered. Okay. And that is this on the one, I, on the one hand, I'm working with these companies, you know, I'm pressuring Rockwell, I'm pressuring Siemens, I'm pressuring Emerson, I'm pressuring these guys. And sometimes I'm doing it pub publicly. I'm trolling them. You know, sometimes I'm doing that just to get their attention. We know how many people from those companies watch our videos. We know they're hearing, you know, and, and then sometimes I'm, I'm doing it over dinner, you know, and sometimes I'm doing it, I'm doing it the soft skill way, but what's missing is you're not doing it. And what you need is you need architects in the middle who are telling you what you need to say to them. And because your buying power, okay, is what is going to drive the large OEMs to support the technology that you need to stay in business. Yep. Okay. You, you have to give them the financial incentive to do this. Not every organization's doing it because that's their mission. There are many organizations. I mean, Rockwell, the senior leadership at Rockwell has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders, a legal fiduciary responsibility. So the only way to get Rockwell to pivot is if it's in the best interest of their shareholders. You have, a, you have no choice and you got to use the consult. You have to use the consumer to do that. And, and I think it's incumbent upon people like us, Rick, and our community to be communicating that to our customers, to the end users saying, we need to leverage our buying power to drive the OEMs in the direction that they need to go so that they have the financial incentive to do so. So I agree with you hundred percent, man. Two questions on that. One is um, I read a book in the way back, again, the way back machine was about Stephen Wheelwright was a MIT guy. I think it was MIT guy. Um, it was called competing through manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, it was going back like 40 years, right? But it basically said most companies, remember like what went, the automotive industry went through where manufacturing just a cost, right? Yep. Well, how do you turn manufacturing into a competitive part? Not, a, honestly, not every industry will ever be in that mode. Some commodity shit, you might as well just outsource it. But, yep. but it, it's, it's a source of competitive advantage to the outsourcer. Nevertheless, get, so the question becomes, are there enough people left in these manufacturing companies that can take that role? Or are they so dependent on outside expertise to do that? Um, that's just one question. And the second is when you do these engagements, um, and this is more like a, almost a COVID question, do you find you're as effective remote or is, it, or is there an effectiveness amplifier when you're in the same room? I, okay, so initially, I would, I'm going to answer the second question first. Initially... I was definitely much more effective in the room. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you know, thank you to Zoom, right? So it wasn't until Zoom came along. Zoom is such superior teleconference technology that once Zoom, I mean, they're in that, and the Zoom story is an amazing story, right? Zoom is what WebEx would have built if WebEx was built today. And it was built by the same damn team, right? The WebEx team left and built Zoom. So the, 
Zoom made it, we've, we've gotten comfortable enough now where as long as we insist everyone has their cameras on, okay, and we do our homework on who's going to be in the presentation on Zoom, I'm just as effective now as I am in person. Um, and I've gotten good enough with OneNote so I can do OneNote the way I do a whiteboard. Yeah. So that's the, that's the second question. The, the first question is no. The manufacturers do not have the human resources and the capability to do it, the technical expertise. And I actually cover this. I, I covered this in a video as to why, what's the reason. And it really boils down to who's running the manufacturers. It's accountants. It's, it's HR people. It's not technical people. One of the solutions that we need is, I mean, what's the biggest difference between Tesla and every other automotive manufacturer? Every other automotive manufacturer is being run by an MBA and Tesla is being run by an engineer. And you know, th so there is a, a level of commitment to technology at Tesla that you just don't see at other manufacturers. But the issue that the manufacturers have is they can't afford the resources right now. I mean, we don't, the economy of scale, uh, the, the, right now, the demand for a, a, you know, if you're a senior level architect and you can do the kind of stuff we do, if you're not, I mean, you could pull 250 easy. And if you, if you wanted to just consult, you can make a half million dollars a year you know, free and clear because the demand is just so friggin' high and there's so few people. But what we do and part of what digital master, what mastermind and mentorship is, it's all about training up those people. And the vast majority of the people who are in those programs work for the end users. And so if you look, we are training up those resources. Part of what we do do though, is we will, if we identify a resource internally that is capable, we put that in our report. And literally, there was one I did in Illinois you know, I, um, in, in outside of Chicago, I literally said, you need to make this guy your CTO and you got to put him on the board. You, you got to make this guy your CTO by name. And I said, you got to make this guy who's a controls engineer, your director of digital transformation. And I mean, they did it. They went and did it. And awesome. up, in New up in New Hampshire, there was another guy. He was like a product engineer. And I'm like, that guy needs to be your director of digital transformation. He literally moved like four steps up the food chain. So in many ways, we're doing that. But to, to your point, and I think you kind of already knew the answer that no, they don't, they don't have those resources. And that's part of the reason we created IoT.University is so that we can help create those resources. It's not that they don't have smart people. It's not that. It's that there's a learning curve, you know, and, and, and there's so many new skills you have to learn and you, and you got to do it in a certain way and everyone's going to make the same mistakes. So now you got to do it in a way where they can make the mistakes without costing too much money so they can learn from those mistakes. And so that's another whole component of the, of the, of the, the community is we're trying to train those people up, but I don't think it's truly going to be fixed on the manufacturing side all emerging manufacturers are run by engineers and tech people, right? All they're, they're not run by accountants and HR. And, and the only companies that are going to survive are the ones that pivot to technical leadership, number one, and number two, they are they're comfortable with investing in the resources they have to have because right now, you know, your digital transformation architect, your average developer on your digital transformation team is going to make more than the general manager in the plant. So, and until you can, until you're comfortable with those economics, until your general manager is comfortable with that, that that's that's obviously a barrier to getting those resources on site. As a big fan of micro and micro works, and you know, I, I, it always bothered me like a great welder pipe fitter makes less than a shitty programmer. Like, it's crazy. Something's wrong. It's crazy. 
An interesting, to your point, this would be cool to watch because VW, you know, her, her, her D, Dr. Deese is a, um, he's an engineer, right? Huh? He's trying, you know, I get, of course, he's an executive at a very, very large company as well. But it's like, is that enough infusion to drive that kind of uh, transformation through? We'll see. Vol Volkswagen is number four. So if you look on the industry 4.0 distribution, yeah. VW is number four on the list. So yeah. you've got Tesla and Amazon are in the top five. Yeah. There's one other company, which we can't share, but, and Volkswagen is number four on the list of the top 10 companies who are the most digitally mature in, in, in our sample set, which is like 1300 something companies. Now Volkswagen is the only one in the top 10. That's a legacy company. It's pretty awesome. So yeah. hopefully it plays out, right? Yeah. The commit, the level of commitment, the level of commitment to tech at VW is, is it's, it, it's on par with what Tesla's doing. That's awesome. Yeah. So la last thing, and then we'll call it a day. So what, what do you do nowadays? So I know, so I know you're consulting entrepreneurs, you know, what, what, what's, what does Rick Bellotta do today? Is it Bellotta or Bellotta? Bellotta. Yeah. Bellotta. Bellotta. What, what does Bellotta. Rick Bellotta do? To, yeah. And <laughs> what is he doing today? And what, what, what's his plan, you know, going forward? So I negotiated with, with my wife that I wouldn't do another startup. Okay. A couple <laughs> Smart woman. Yeah, right. We restored an old house. You know, I'm getting up there. So I got to I got to start the enjoying things. But, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on two wheels, mountain bikes, gravel bikes, dirt bikes, stuff like that. Um, I, I try and earmark about two and a half days a week for the stuff I call work. So some of it is, just like you said, that hour or two a day, just, just screwing around with technology. You know, if I want to debate somebody about blockchain, I better know what I'm talking about. I better right. know how the implementations differ. And right. So I'd like to be an informed troll if, if that's the such <laughs> thing, right? The best kind, right. the best kind. Um, you know, again, but combination of learning and experimentation, um, Secondly, you know, these, I have some active, like, like more traditional advisory board stuff. Some are more active than others. Uh, I did that stand up Microsoft for a year and a half. It was a two day a week gig. So that's kind of like my shtick is kind of coming up with like a, a chunk of time and then just sprinkle it around on high impact stuff. Um, but similarly, you know, there's a couple, I've met a couple companies, for example, via, via uh, the discord server that yep. I've kind of. I'm going to be to informally help. Basically, what I like to do is just share my experience, right? Hey, pitch me as if I was a potential investor or customer, and I'll give you feedback. I'll tell you, show me your product plans and your architecture. I'll give you feedback. And so, sometimes that's super helpful. Hopefully, it's helpful. Um, I love every one of those engagements. And I, I truly appreciate you joining the community, man. I mean, it, it, you know, when we launched the Discord server over, over a year ago, you know, I was really worried. I told Zach, I said, you know, this could become a shit show. Like we, 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 we have to be, we have to be maniacal to, uh, about not allowing people to actively sell in the discord server or to kill it. Right. So, you know, and, and, and thankfully the community has been, has, you know, Hey, that doesn't mean if somebody says, Hey, I'm looking for problem X, or is there someone here who can help me? Damn it. We need to help them, but don't, you know, we're not, we're not, not having people actively sell has made it huge difference. And, and the fact that it's been sustainable is what I honestly, what I'm most proud of, but the, the people who have joined, I mean, there are just so many amazing technical talents, amazing business minds in the community. And it's crazy. So many people have told me like how organically their businesses have grown 
and just effortlessly because they're it's moth to a flame. They're connected with the right client at the right time who has the right problem and they got the right solution. And, you know, it's, it makes me really, it, it does make me really, really proud, but it's the community that does that all the people, you know, the Matt Paris's and the Jeff Schrader's and the Dave Schultz and the Omar's and all those guys, you know, the Mario Ishigawa's and the Dan Rikens, all these guys who are just, and now yeah. the Rick Bellatas <clears throat> who are so committed to what the mission is, right? You know, the and and the, the cultural diffusion that happens there is just it's profound. I mean, it really just yeah, Walker and I can't respond to three thousand people by ourselves, right? So right, it's there's those no way leaders to... that help us grow the community. We set the vision, right? Walker sets the vision. I help with the implementation, but the community is really what drives it home. And and I really appreciate your engagement in the community, Rick. It really comes through in this podcast. And, and I'll give my, you know, my standard thing that I used to start every presentation with and filter my is 80% of what I say is fact, 20% is bullshit. I don't know which is which. So when I'm probing, sometimes that's kind of a way to, to, to learn. It's a way to solicit kind of get people to critically think a little bit. Sometimes, yeah. man, you're good at it. You know how to poke. Yeah, we talk it. We, I call it. It's conflict theory. I use I use conflict theory all the time to get, you know, I mean, if I got to poke someone to get them riled up, to get them thinking, to get other people thinking, to get them talking. I got no problem doing it and neither do you. And, 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 and if you look at that thread, if you look at that initial, you know, that very first thread you did, it's one of the, it's one of the most meaningful discussions that we've had in the discord server. And that's saying a lot because there've been a lot of meaningful conversations in that, in, in the server, on the server itself. It's so. going to be interesting. I think, you know, I hope a lot of people engage and, you know, use, and, and this community grows. It's going to be interesting challenges. It grows maybe more segmentation, right. Within industry yep. verticals and birds with the usual stuff, but um, Hey, good problem to have. Right. Yeah. So Rick, man, it's been an absolute pleasure, dude. I mean, I, and, and, you know, I, and ab- by the way, I absolutely would love to collaborate. Um, you know, we, talked about that offline would love to collaborate i think um you know even after this podcast now i'm like yeah man this is you know rick and i could make a huge difference together and and i i, tr- I truly appreciate you coming on man you know thanks 